Welcome to Body of Work, an exploration of health topics in the news and important issues facing science with experts from Baylor College of Medicine. I'm Erin Blair, and my guest today is the director of Baylor Global Health, Dr. Sharmila Anandasabhapathy. So what diseases are of the most global concern? So the diseases that are of the most concern worldwide right now are, are what we call non-communicable diseases. So cardiovascular disease, heart disease, stroke, cancer, followed closely by neurodegenerative diseases. These are Alzheimer's and other related dementias, diabetes. Um, this doesn't mean that infectious diseases or the communicable diseases are not important. Um, we still have tuberculosis, AIDS, and malaria, um, particularly in low-income countries, um, but they're rapidly being overtaken worldwide by these non-communicable diseases and diseases of our lifestyle, basically, and the aging population. Now, unfortunately, um, countries within sub-Saharan Africa see a dual burden of disease, so they're still seeing high rates of HIV and malaria and of course, we know there's an Ebola epidemic recently. Um, but the leading cause of death worldwide over the next two decades will actually be cancer. Mm. And stage by stage, mortality rates are higher in low-income countries. So this is really the big disease to be concerned about globally. Why should we think about health on a global scale? So... Today, we are truly one world, and I don't mean this as a platitude. It's not kumbaya, you know, around the campfire, but literally, from a healthcare perspective, we are one world, and this is directly a result of industrialization and globalization. We are deeply interconnected uh, worldwide, so think of it. Um, food, especially with fast food going into these remote regions, is on a global scale. The internet, which has an effect on lifestyle and health habits worldwide, and of course, air travel, right? Um, the net result is that diseases that affect us affect others, um, particularly our lifestyle-related diseases, diabetes, heart disease, lung cancer, and diseases that affect others affect us. And we often are surprised by this, but if you recall, the 2014 Ebola epidemic came to Dallas. So I think there... it we should be concerned about other parts of the world and we should be interested in diseases of other areas. Can we use global health strategies to overcome some of America's homegrown challenges? Oh, absolutely. And we found that this happens often unexpectedly. Um, I love to tell my students, you know, that necessity is the mother of invention, right? And what this means is that when you have a lot, there's less need to be creative. When you have little or nothing, you are forced to innovate. So this is why many low-income countries are leapfrogging ahead um, in healthcare innovation, both in terms of technologies physical technologies such as mobile technologies, both for diagnosis and providing care, and their approaches. Um, so they don't rely on traditional models where a patient comes into a hospital to see a doctor, but they're looking at more innovative methods of delivery into the community, often leveraging software for remote consultation or even apps where patients and families can directly manage their care. And of course, the big driver in this is cost. It almost always is, right? In the U.S., we spend about $9,000 a year per person or more mm. on health care. Um, in sub-Saharan Africa, this is closer to $200 per patient. Um, austerity 
forces transformative approaches. And I'm not saying it's good to be under-resourced, rather that we could all be more cost-conscious and creative. Why do you think so many global health solutions are developed in the form of technology? Well, if we've learned anything this past century, you never bet against technology, right? (laughs) Um, But I do believe that um, this is both need and market-driven. We have an aging population, um, an increased onset of chronic disease, as we talked about. And we're lucky, actually, that there's a lot of ingenious tools and technologies that are emerging often at a lower price point. Um, I do think the challenge never really is technology. Technology advances. Technology is continually innovated. It's often the implementation. Um, So how do you get doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, the medical establishment to accept new tools and and approaches and then utilize them safely, consistently, effectively? Um, there are often, you know, several P's, if we use the letter P in terms of thinking about technology innovation. One is the person, you know, who is using the technology, the provider. We need to think about who that is. Um, is it a community health worker? Is it a nurse? Is it a physician? So we have to target the technology to that person. And then who is the technology being used um, for and the patient? What is the language, the literacy level, their cultural understanding and or bias, um, their acceptance of the technology? And then, of course, the place where is it being used Um, and what are the challenges there power supply water infrastructure these are all things that lead to either the success or failure of a technology what are some of the new innovations coming out of Baylor Global Health so you must have heard about the smart pod oh yes Everyone's talking about the SmartPod. Well, the SmartPod um, is a great example of a technology that was developed uh, for West Africa during the 2014 Ebola epidemic, but then, as we learned, has tremendous applications in the U.S. as well. And the SmartPod itself is an 8 by 20 um, shipping container that uh, expands within about five minutes with four people into a 400-square-foot clinic. Hmm. Um, And we have deployed a clinic uh, to Monrovia, Liberia, where it's being used in Ebola patients, and subsequently we built two laboratories, a biosafety level two lab and a biosafety level three lab, as well as a pharmacy, and those are in the field in in West Africa as well. Um, And this was a really interesting challenge in terms of understanding Understanding the landscape in West Africa. For one, we started out with a standard steel shipping container, and then we realized that the roads there couldn't handle the weight of the steel, and because bleach was being used for Ebola, it would corrode. So we had to switch to an aluminum structure that was lighter weight. In addition, um, we thought we were helping the healthcare workers by providing air conditioning and all of these, you know, kind of um, first world advantages, and then we turned out the patients didn't like that, so <laughs> we had to redesign it. So the doors were apart to allow cross-ventilation. The idea of privacy in that culture, um, not only was it um, less of an issue, the patients wanted to be able to see their family members. So we had to think about where we were placing windows to allow um, visual access at least. And lastly, um, we had to provide support for the doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers that were using the units by providing software and apps using figures and graphics rather than language um, for guiding them on the procedures. And so this was a really um, important uh, 
case example for us on developing a technology for one part of the world. Um, it worked in Africa, which was great. And in, when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, we realized that there may be a need for these types of technologies in the United States. So now we're looking at um, applying that model for healthcare here in Houston, which is really exciting. What about telemedicine? I would think that would be a useful application in a remote location. So one of um, the greatest advantages of being in Houston, I think, is being close to the Johnson Space Center and NASA. And they um, actually helped us. Their engineers helped us with the volumetric modeling for our units that went to Africa. Um, we took a cue from them in terms of remote medical management to support um, healthcare workers in the field. So we've been looking both at what we call teleguidance, um, using augmented reality to guide a physician or healthcare worker through a, through a procedure or a laboratory procedure in a hands um, in a hands free fashion, mm -hmm. so you can see the guidance on uh, the augmented reality glasses and then perform the procedure hands free. Um, and then we um, are also working with them on the development of apps for assistance in the field in real time and training. And some of these can either be um, used on a cell phone or using virtual reality glasses if you need a more immersive experience. It seems like NASA would have a lot of uh, commonality with a lot of the problems that you see in under-resourced parts of the world. Well, they um, have to work in the most austere, inhospitable, under-resourced environment uh, known to uh, mankind, right? So, um, yeah, no, it's been a, a unique opportunity um, to have them close by. How does computer-assisted diagnosis work? So this gets to the concept of autonomous medicine, um, when we have to practice medicine in an area that has no support. So either the remotest part of Africa or, you know, for NASA, Mars, right? Um, so we've used this actually for gastrointestinal cancer screening. I'm a gastroenterologist. Um, and if you think about how cancer screening is done in the United States, it'll, it'll give you a sense of all of the things that can go wrong when you do this in a more austere environment. So what do I do when I look for esophageal cancer in a patient? I have to insert a scope in a patient that's asleep. I have to image the esophagus and... I've had to have, you know, over a decade of clinical training to learn what abnormal looks like. When I see tissue that is abnormal, I have to take a biopsy, and my technician needs to know how to assist with it and remove that biopsy. That biopsy has to get processed in a laboratory, sent to a pathologist. The pathologist has to um, provide a diagnosis, get back to the doctor. The doctor has to get back to the patient with a diagnosis, and the patient has to come back in if it requires treatment. So let's change that paradigm. Let's talk about a portable tablet-based endoscope that perhaps provides a diagnosis. Well, what if your scope was attached to a tablet computer and the scope was portable and battery-operated, perhaps smaller? Perhaps it could be inserted um, easily by a non-gastroenterologist, perhaps even a non-physician in a patient that didn't need to be asleep. And what if the scope was powered by and connected to a tablet computer or even a cell phone, and that uh, tablet computer or cell phone could not only obtain the images, 
but store the images and analyze the images um, using software algorithms, effectively a computer-assisted diagnosis. And then what if you didn't need to take that piece of tissue because the computer was providing you the diagnosis, so you could basically obtain in real time in the field an optical biopsy, and then treat the patient immediately if they needed it, or tell them that they were cancer-free at the time. So what have we done by changing this paradigm? We've reduced the cost, we've increased the impact, we've potentially improved outcomes um, from loss of follow-up, and, and this can really provide a transformative effect on medical care. In the areas of the world that we've worked in, which include Africa, Northern China, South and Central America, we've found that over 25% of patients who we do endoscopy on, once they go home, often to remote or rural areas, um, they don't return for follow-up. And this is a huge problem with cancer care, because if you find something and you can't treat it, you can imagine the devastating effect of, of this. So currently, um, we've been doing clinical trials in the areas that I've mentioned, um, working with uh, Dr. Rebecca Richards-Cordham and her engineers at Rice. Um, and we've enrolled over 1,000 patients worldwide looking at this tablet-based, uh, portable endoscopic approach. Have uh, you been involved with maternal and child health initiatives as well? Yeah, this is something that's really important to us because one of the leading causes of mortality in women worldwide, um, particularly in low-income countries, is childbirth. And it really shouldn't be um, a cause of death um, in this day and age. Um, and so we're looking actually at um, the approach we mentioned, which addresses both the infrastructure by provision of our off-grid pods uh, for labor and delivery and the performance of C-section, then also providing training. Uh, via apps, virtual reality, and augmented reality guidance to um, nurse midwives and uh, physicians in the field. How do physicians and their healthcare workers in the field respond to a sort of a virtual reality training session? That's a great question. Um, you would think they would be deeply skeptical. <laughs> um, some are, but I find the skeptics are actually more in the United States. <laughs> the, what we've actually found, and we've actually done um, some studies looking at acceptance of these types of technologies, um, what we found is really surprising. In, in areas of the world, um, such as sub-Saharan Africa, and most recently we're working in Liberia, where our pods are, um, we found that the healthcare workers um, were very responsive to anything that used cell phones or augmented reality um, with the use of cell phones. And it's simply because cell phones are so pervasive. Um, and people are fairly comfortable with mobile technologies. And when you have nothing else, um, it, it can be a lifeline uh, for many people. So we were actually surprised um, how accepting <laughs> Um, the providers were in those settings. Well, and as you say, the the technology is just leapfrogged there. You didn't go through the, the period of landlines. They just went directly to the cell, cell phone. phones. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. When we think of global health, we think of lack of basic resources like electricity, Wi-Fi, and water. How do you mitigate those issues when developing technologies? 
Yeah, so I mentioned that um, I often think about the letter P when we talk about the success of a technology. And so that really gets to the issue of P for place, right? So um, think about the environment that you're working in. If there's no power grid, you need to think about solar or hybrid generators, um, battery backup. And if there's no water supply, um, you have to think about using the existing water that you have, if it's from a river, lake, or a stream or rainwater and using filtration systems. Um, and we can't do all of this um, at Baylor Global, so it brings us to another P, which is partnerships. Um, so we partner with others in this space, and there are a lot of groups that are coming up with really innovative batteries, uh, which can increase capacity uh, for storage of electricity and also innovative water filtration systems um, so that uh, you can have an autonomous water supply in these settings. In medical technology development, what separates a cool idea from an innovation that is sustainable and effective? So what separates a cool idea from an innovation that's sustainable and effective is really um, how it's implemented and scaled, right? So cool ideas abound, um, but sometimes that cool idea may not be acceptable in that culture. Um, it may not work in that environment, um, and it may not have a plan for scale-up and dissemination, which includes financing, delivery mechanisms, supply chain. Um, and lastly, education is so critical. If we can't train healthcare workers on how to use the technology safely, effectively, then your technology is, is not useful. And, and Baylor's a medical school, and I believe this is where we can make the biggest difference in terms of educating the healthcare workforce globally. And you partner um, that capability with engineers, with uh, business schools who can assist with financing and delivery mechanisms, and I think it's a very powerful combination. And so the most impactful approach um, is not incremental. It's transformative. It understands the people um, in the setting where it's being used, um, whether it's the provider or the patient. It understands the environment and the limitations, and it has the ability to be spread. Um, get used around the world, scaled up, and, and able to access different areas. I understand that it's a common practice for hospitals to donate their slightly older technology to uh, the developing world. Are there any issues with that? I think um, this is one of the, the biggest issues that exist in global health. Um, donations abound, and I think it's wonderful um, that uh, people are generous. But when we think specifically about donations of equipment or technology, we really have to make sure they're appropriate for that environment. And one of the things that has always saddened me um, when we work in many of these settings um, are these equipment graveyards where you'll see a three Tesla MRI scanner that was donated by a government that is basically sitting in the basement of a hospital or outside in a courtyard broken mm -hmm. and not functioning. Um, and this is because either the power requirements were not um, appropriate for that area, there was nobody there to repair it, or it required so much support um, and maintenance that that was not feasible in that setting. So I think we need to think very hard about um, what types of technologies that we're, we're putting in an area, who the user is, and what the capability is uh, for both for maintenance and then repair. What's next for global health? Mm -hmm. 
That's my favorite question. <laughs> um, so after Hurricane Harvey, um, we realized as a program that um, global can be local, and there may be need for some of these approaches in the United States, especially after catastrophic natural disasters, um, such as the hurricane. And then you remember Star Trek, right? Space, the final frontier. So the next few decades, I believe that global health will be galactic health. Um, the next place we will be screening or treating cancer maybe outside of Earth's orbit. And I, for one, would love to perform the next portable tablet endoscopy on Mars. That would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning into Body of Work by Baylor College of Medicine. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for our next episode where we'll talk with Dr. Malcolm Brenner about immunotherapy and using your body's own immune system to fight cancer. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to listen. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher, as well as at bcm.edu slash podcast. There you can find the episode notes, including information about the experts featured on the show. A quick note about the medical advice and opinions stated in this podcast. Each individual's health profile is unique, so please see a healthcare professional about any questions you may have. Until next time, take care. <laughs>